Good evening and happy 2017 to friends of Voices of the Sacred Feminine across town and across the globe. If you're new to the show, I'm your hostess, Karen Tate, named one of the 13 most influential women in goddess spirituality and a wisdom keeper of the goddess spirituality movement. I thank you for taking your valuable time to be with me tonight and warmly invite you to partake of the sharing the show has to offer every week, a show many of you have lovingly called a treasure trove of wisdom for our time. And thanks to Celia for that little snippet from her wonderful repertoire of music, and uh, that one tonight was called Meta Prayer. Well, I know from the demographics we've been picking up a lot of new listeners, Uh, so if you're just getting to know me, I've been the host here of Voices of the Sacred Feminine for over 10 years now. Boy, the time sure flies. I'm also the author of several books. Uh, My fifth uh, came out a few weeks ago, dedicated to Senator Bernie and Jane Sanders and the visionary Rianne Eisler. I like to call it uh, an anthology of the sacred feminine all grown up. It's titled Goddess 2.0, Advancing a New Path Forward, talking about how ideals of the feminine, like caring economics, sharing, nurturing, equality, and fairness, must become the new normal to save the future of humanity and Mother Earth. I'll tell you more about the contributors in the book a bit later in the show. I've also authored the award-winning Walking in Ancient Path, Rebirthing Goddess on Planet Earth, Sacred Places of Goddess, 108 Destinations, which, by the way, can be used to drive your own sacred tour to goddess sites the world over, including a West Coast goddess pilgrimage here in the United States or an assortment of other sacred sites of the divine feminine across the globe. Goddess Calling, Inspirational Messages and Meditations of Sacred Feminine Liberation Theology. Yep, that's kind of a mouthful. Uh, That was my third book, and that kind of gives us some ideas to connect more deeply with goddess as deity archetype and ideal and understand how the spirituality helps us become better people and helps make the world a better place. And uh, finally, there's uh, my first anthology that came out a couple years ago. It's a collection of essays from guests who have appeared on this very show. Like, uh, well, it's, uh, and some of them are transcripts, too, of the actual interviews. Uh, like Noam Chomsky, Rianne Eisler, Starhawk, uh, folks from the Cakes for the Queen of Heaven series, like Liz Fisher and Shirley Rank. Uh, Joan Marler's in the book, uh, as is Charlene Spretnak, Phyllis Chesler, Judy Gran, Laura Flanders of Grit TV, Gloria Felt of Planned Parenthood. And that one's uh, titled, as you might expect, Voices of the Sacred Feminine with uh, subtitle Conversations to Reshape the World. You know, we used to say, down with the patriarchy, may patriarchy fall in rituals uh, performed by a group I used to belong to. But, you know, we didn't really articulate what we would replace patriarchy with. It it was very nebulous. And at the time, I'm not even sure if we realized that or how many of us might have realized that. Well, my anthologies and books give us real clear answers how goddess spirituality can be relevant to reshape the world into one we all have a wonderful quality of life and not just those who have been doing the domination and exploitation. We really need to start taking responsibility for our own education because, you know, I think we've most of us have seen if we're not uh, – 
you know, if we're not afraid to take the blinders off. The political elites and the corporate media does not have our best interest as their priority. And that's why I've been bringing you wonderful guests to broaden our horizons, like Professor Robert McChesney last week discussing politics and journalism. We've had the economist and Professor Richard Wolf here uh, on the show uh, after I saw how wonderful he was on PBS. Um, You know, this way, uh, when politicians double-talk us or, or tell us, for instance, they have to privatize everything or democratic socialism is uh, a, a European evil, we'll know better and understand they're just puppets for their corporate masters who want to keep us fighting each other instead of coming together, coming together to make government and the world work for the most of us. However, that said, uh, tonight we go back to our roots a bit. Uh, Tonight, I'm happy to have, uh, returning to the show, uh, Professor Miriam Robbins-Dexter, and our topic is the monstrous or frightful goddess, uh, based on a paper she wrote in the Journal of Archaeomythology. I also have a wonderful uh, New Year's poem from listener Lavana I'd like to share with you uh, to start the new year off on an introspective note. Uh, we'll get to that uh, after the interview. And I uh, also have some news of some upcoming events you might want to know about, especially if you're in the Southern California area. We have the Pagan Conference at Claremont College uh, coming up at the end of uh, January. Uh, February 18th is uh, the book launch party uh, or the book launch extravaganza, as we like to call it, uh, for Goddess 2.0, uh, just to name a few things. But you know what? Let's uh, get to our show tonight uh, with uh, Marian Robbins-Dexter, and I'll introduce you to her uh, and her work, uh, just in case she's new to you, by way of her bio. Uh, Miriam Robbins-Dexter holds a Ph.D. in Ancient Indo-European Languages, Archaeology, and Comparative Mythology from UCLA. Her first book, Whence the Goddess, a source book, in which she translated texts from 13 languages, was used for courses she taught at UCLA for a decade and a half. She completed and supplemented the final book of Maria Gambutis, The Living Goddess. Her uh, 2010 book, co-authored with Victor Mayer, Sacred Display, Divine and Magical Female Figures of Eurasia, won the 2012 Association for the Study of Women and Mythology Sarasvati Award for Best Nonfiction Book on Women in Mythology. In 2013, Miriam and Victor published a new monograph, Sacred Display, New Findings, in the University of Pennsylvania online series, Sinoplatonic Papers. Uh, with Vicki Noble, she edited the anthology Four Mothers of the Women's Spirituality Movement, Elders and Visionaries. Uh, Let's see, 2015 Susan Kopelman Award for Best Edited Feminist Anthology. I believe uh, that anthology won that award. Uh, Miriam yeah. is author of over 30 uh, scholarly. I, I'm sorry, Miriam, is, 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 was that an affirmation? It, the it was, uh, yeah. anthology won. Wonderful. Okay, so let me repeat that so it's clear uh, because that's uh, quite important. Uh, so uh, Miriam and Vicki Noble edited the anthology Foremothers of the Women's Spirituality Movement, uh, Elders and Visionaries, which won the Susan Kopelman Award for Best Edited Feminist Anthology in 2016. 
She's the author of over 30 scholarly articles and 11 encyclopedia articles on ancient female figures. She's edited and co-edited 16 scholarly volumes. For 13 years, she taught courses in Latin, Greek, and Sanskrit languages in the Department of Classics at USC. She's guest lectured at the new Bulgarian University in Sofia, Bulgaria, and Alexandra Iowan Cusa University in Moldavia, Moldavia, Romania. Wow, uh, we couldn't have a more qualified person on the show tonight to get us back to our roots uh, talking about goddess. So, Miriam, thank you so much you. Uh, for being back with us uh, here on the show. I'm very glad to. Well, um, I wanted to ask you, before we get going, about our topic tonight, the frightful goddess, birds, snakes, and witches. Um, You know, we've talked before on the show, uh, people actually can go back into the archives and uh, put your name in the search box. Uh, You know, we've talked about uh, the sacred display images, which, you know, we're primarily talking about uh, Sheila Nagigs. Uh, we did an interview on that. I would encourage folks to uh, to listen to that. And tonight we're doing the frightful goddess, as I mentioned, bird snakes and witches. But you know, you and I have talked a good bit, I think, about Chateau Hayuk and uh, Golbeki Tepki mm-hmm. too. Uh, yeah. And uh, I I think um, you know we we've had some interviews about that. Um, and I wonder, uh, you, you I feel like you're sort of the go-to person um, before mm-hmm. we get into tonight's actual topic, have there been any new discoveries uh, out of Chateau Hayuk or Golbeki Tepki or any new understandings that um, goddess advocates in particular might be interested in? In Chateau Hayuk this past year, um, a female figure was excavated. She looks a lot like some of the other female figures excavated there. Uh, she looks a lot like the female figure who was on a leopard throne found in a grain bin. Um, but interestingly, she seems to be pinching her nipples. I'm not quite sure why. Um, but um, this is an, this is another quite in the the aesthetic of early Chatelhoyek. Hmm, interesting, interesting. Mm-hmm. And now, uh, Golbeki Tepki, they did, I don't think it's very widely publicized, but they did find a Sheila Nagid type, type image. Or yeah. uh, a, are they showing that much, or they still have it hidden in the caretaker's work shed? No. <laughs> It, it she um she is now on display and there's another figure um which is part of the totem pole it looks like a totem pole it's it's a series of three figures and one of them looks like she's giving birth so hmm. um some very interesting artifacts are coming to light so have that, we figured that was out maybe... it... sorry no go ahead hello go ahead yeah, I'm here. Oh, um, have, can... I Go ahead, Miriam. Oh, okay. That was maybe four years ago that the figure on a what looks almost like a totem pole was found. Um, the figure um, that looks like a Sheila um, is uh, considerably earlier. The excavator, Klaus Schmidt, passed away a few years ago. Um, so I don't know. Um, I'm, I 
believe they're they're carrying on the the excavation, but I don't know at this point who's leading it. Did they ever uh, come to a conclusion that you were satisfied with what Gobeki Tepki um, the the um, you know what the site was about? You know the uh, mm-hmm. could you just maybe elaborate on that a little bit? Well, Klaus Schmidt thought that it was a, a pre um, it was a, a pre-Neolithic non-habitation site. It was a ritual site. I, th- I think he's, he was right um, because not a lot of domestic debris was found there. And so people probably had regular gatherings. Um, they would have been sort of late hunter-gatherers and they would have gathered there to do ritual and for for those who don't know, there are these monumental L-shaped um, uh, stele, if you will, um, mostly representing various animals, often predators, but other animals as, as well. And they were found in these circular... Uh, they look these circular excavations that looked like perhaps they were shrines. Mm. Yeah, so yeah. I would very encourage listeners exciting. to Google Google the site. It's a very interesting yeah. looking site. Yeah. So people would maybe like come there on holy days. We think, um, who knows? Maybe for the equinoxes. Uh, I mean, yeah. it's not that clear, yeah. right? It's not that clear. No. Yeah. Well, hopefully one day um, maybe something will be unearthed and it will be crystal clear. <laughs> that would be wonderful. Um, yeah, but I guess, you know, they'll probably be talking about uh, Gobeki Tepki uh, and spec- speculating on it like we do Stonehenge. You know, um, yeah. when you think about all the theories that have come out uh, about Stonehenge. Yeah. Because um, I, I'm going out on a limb here. Uh, I'm saying this off the top of my head, and I probably shouldn't. But aren't those two sites um, comparable in date? Uh, no. In Gobekli age? Tepe? No. Gobekli Tepe dates to about 9,000 BCE. Stonehenge, um, there's a layer that dates to maybe, um, the earlier layer dates to about 3500 BCE, the later ones in the 2000s. Okay. Uh, But, you know, the Neolithic ran late in Britain. So um, so when Gobeki Tepki was uh, being used, uh, just for points of reference, what was like maybe going on in Egypt or Greece? Um, do we know, or is that like one of the oldest? Mm-hmm. Uh, that and Chateau, I mean, they're uh, Chateau Hayuk and Gobeki Tepki are um, contemporaries, aren't they? Uh, Chatahoyuk is very early Neolithic. Uh, Gobekli Tepe is pre-Neolithic, so it predates um, Chatahoyuk by, I would say, at least 2,500 years, something like okay. that. Okay. Um, now in Egypt, um, we it throughout the Near East are are found um, pre-Neolithic settlements. 
um, some people call them Mesolithic, but that term has sort of gone out of fashion. So um, the the Upper Paleolithic, the later Paleolithic, dates to from about 40,000 BCE to about 10,000. After that, you find Mesolithic or pre-Neolithic sites, and then the Neolithic begins around 7,000 BCE in the Near East, and oh, Chatalhuyuk dates to, I'm not positive, somewhere between 6,500 and 6,200 BCE. So where does Mohandaro fit in there? Because I know that's one of the earliest civilizations we know about, I, I, I believe. Well, Mohenjo-daro, um, that's part of the Indus Valley civilization. There are, um, I'm working on a book on the Indus Valley civilization with Vicki Noble and Laura Amazone, and we've been working on it and having a wonderful time for some time. The mature period of this civilization goes from about 2600 BCE to about 1900 BCE, but there are a lot of much earlier sites um, throughout that area, which um, which goes from Pakistan to western India and north into Afghanistan. Wow. Okay. Very well, high civilization. That, well, that will be a book we will definitely look forward to. Um, well, thank you for that uh, because, uh, you know, it, it's hard to keep tabs on these things. And uh, oh, yeah. I know you kind of have your, your finger on the pulse of, uh, you know, of, of what's happening in these ancient sites. And I find them, uh, uh, you know, intriguing. And, you know, keep hoping yeah. that they will uh, discover some goddess was worshipped there. Wouldn't that be cool? I mean, that, that the, the, uh, I mean there's nothing definitive in terms of, uh, that idea at Gobeki Tepki is there? Um, there really isn't. You know, most of the um, monumental artifacts are of animals, so it's really hard to tell at this point. But only a fraction of the site has been excavated so far. They're working hard on it. I know they're excavating right now, or you know, in the summer months. Or, but. Um, it's still just a fraction of what we will find in the coming years. Okay. Well, and thank you for clarifying the timeline, too, because it's really hard to keep that all in, in context. Um, so let's, uh, let's go ahead and turn our attention to our uh, topic for tonight, the frightful goddess, birds, snakes, okay. and witches. Um, now, I, uh, I, I forget now how I stumbled onto this. I think maybe you were giving a talk, uh, and I said, uh-oh, got to have, gotta have Miriam come talk to listeners about this. And you pointed me to uh, – was that it, Miriam? You were giving a talk somewhere? It was. I was speaking at the Goddess Temple of Orange County um, okay. at a recent and, um, conference. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I believe it might have been the um, oh the envir the uh, feminist activists or um, yes the Afrofeminist uh, conference really nice right event. right and um, and so anyway you pointed me uh, to the uh, the article that your talk came from I guess or based on to some extent uh, in the Journal of Archaeomythology um, is that uh, is that still 
uh, in print, Miriam? I mean, uh, you well, know, being printed today. It's online. This is an online journal, and okay. it is run by Joan Marler, who's the um, president of the Institute of Archaeomythology, the International Institute of Archaeomythology. I also wrote a similar paper for Feshref for um, a Bulgarian archaeologist, Ivan Marizov, and I also wrote some earlier articles on the same topic. So I've been thinking about this work and refining it for decades. Well, this was a great article, and uh, I'm so glad the journal is online. I mean, even though this this issue is dated 2011, I mean, this material is still so relevant, uh, and I'm sure will continue uh, to be relevant for a long, long time. Um, you know, especially when you're new to goddess spirituality, to understand the ancient symbolism, uh, it, it, this this yeah. made it so clear. It it actually, um, uh, yeah. I, I mean, well, and, and I'll yeah. So because I uh, and you explain it so well, you know, I always, you know, I never quite could understand how, uh, you know, why the bird was a symbol of the goddess. I could understand the snake, but we'll, we'll get into that. We'll get into that. Okay. But, uh, um, so anyway, so this, uh, this article uh, starts off where you're, you're talking about birds and snakes are related to goddesses um, or the beneficent avatar uh, of the prehistoric goddess. And then, uh, uh, and witches and monsters, uh, the maleficent uh, or the fearsome aspect of the goddess. Uh, so why don't you, it might be a good place to just start there. Um, tell us a little bit about that distinction. Well, the um, in prehistoric iconography, we find hundreds, maybe thousands of, throughout Southeast Europe and other places, we find female figurines which have sometimes have stumpy bird arms sometimes are actually painted with stripes that make it look like her torso is feathered um, she often has um, huge eyes uh, a deaky nose and no mouth these are these are clearly um, female bird human hybrids there are also that number a female snake human hybrids and some female bird snake hybrids we you know because these are in every kind of context domestic context um, um, some shrines it's def- difficult for us to know what what were the real qualities and functions of the goddesses. However, this iconography is attached to uh, historic age female figures from the earliest Egyptian and Sumerian iconography through the ages and, and for thousands of years. So um, they're, when they're attached to historic beneficent goddesses or goddesses who serve their cultures in some way, for example, the Greek Athena, who is represented with 
the owl and also with snakes um, really was a, a representative of, of the Greek patriarchy. She was there... She was a multifunctional goddess who was the city protectress, a warrior, a fount of wisdom, and so forth. But she she was turned in the Greek culture to represent what I consider a negative, but um, nonetheless, she was considered beneficent by her people. Um, in these same cultures, there are many female figures who are devalued and and uh, viewed as witches and monsters. For example, the sirens, the harpies, are bird monsters. The, there are just many, many. The snake has to be attacked and overcome in culture after culture in the historic age. And what I think is happening when, for example, Apollo overcomes the Pythia and takes over the Delphic or Oracle, I think that the, the patriarchal warrior hero is taking over the indigenous culture, which was much well, more egalitarian. With- Sim- similarly with Mar- Marduk and Tiamat, too, right? Exactly, I mean, cause, yes. Yeah, yeah, because Tiamat, it, uh, wasn't she a serp- serpent-like, I think? She was. Yeah, she was a sea serpent. Yeah. Well, you, you say in the article, uh, goddess, you know, these uh, these images were beneficent if they were the life-giving aspect for the most part. But then uh, her death-bringing aspect uh, got metamorphosed, in, uh, in, and that's when she turns into the witch or the monster. Um, so, uh, well... You can speak to that, but I wanted to just sort of piggyback on top of that with a second question. Um, You know, you put, you say here, life and death and most European historic cultures cease to be viewed as a continuum worthy of equal veneration. Thus, the the death-bringing aspect of the goddess became um, an object for derision and hatred. Now, that Mm -hmm. made me wonder. I believe um, there's an anthology out there called The Rules of uh, Mars that talks about how patriarchy came to be. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I have an article now isn't you do okay? Um, uh-huh. So you're familiar, and I think um, it might have been Joan Marler who, uh, you know, brought that book to my attention. And she said oh, okay. one of the reasons patriarchy takes hold is because humans are trying to basically cheat death. So is this sort of the same thing in a way, Miriam? You know, um, you know, people don't don't appreciate the death bringer aspect of goddess. It becomes, you know, an object of derision. Is is that sort of also a symptom of perhaps why uh, patriarchy comes to be because they want to deny the cycles of life, basically? Um. I had a slightly different view of that because I'm an Indo-Europeanist. And around 4500 BCE, the Indo-Europeans started migrating from um, the, the grassy and forested steppe areas north of the Caspian and Black Seas. And they ended up all over Europe, some of Asia. They, they were in Chinese Turkestan, Anatolia, all the way west to Spain, 
And they brought with them their world view. And in their world view, they didn't like death very much. So they actually brought it to the indigenous peoples of all of these areas. And in the end, the peoples of all of these areas ended up speaking the languages of the victors, which were the Indo-European languages that the Indo-Europeans had carried with them on their migrations. This changed the world view. Now, what's interesting is, even though the Indo-Europeans went into India, it did not change the world view of uh, the peoples of India. They still continued to believe and still believe in the great round of birth, death, and regeneration. Hmm. So that is one of the cultures that wasn't changed. It's it's patriarchal, and um, probably the first people to bring patriarchy to India were the Indo-Europeans. But but it's still a different worldview that that doesn't hate death. Hmm. Okay. So, um, all right. So, forgive me that you probably answered my question, but my I'm not connecting the dots. Uh, so, since people were um, resisting the cycles of life, you know, resisting yes, this, you absolutely. know, death. Um, uh, do you think that was a reason for them to turn away from the mother goddess because she was nature, and and to turn these goddesses? Um, you know, into, uh, you know, uh, objects of derision. I, I wasn't sure if that was a yes. <laughs> well, when the Indo-Europeans Or it's more arrived, complicated than that. Yeah, it's more complicated. When the Indo-Europeans arrived at all these different places, they sometimes assimilated and even sometimes massacred the indigenous peoples. When they assimilated, they also assimilated their pantheons in which there was always a great goddess. You find a great goddess in Syria, in just everywhere. However, um, some of the some of the great goddesses they assimilated and then put under the aegis of a father god and so many of the the cultures had these goddesses, such as in Greek, uh, Aphrodite, Athena, Demeter, and so forth. But they have lost some of their power because the cultures are overarchingly patriarchal. Now, the Indo-Europeans brought with them a few goddesses, but they're all personified aspects of nature, a dawn goddess, a, a sun maiden, a river goddess, the earth goddess. So there were more than solar deities, solar male deities in, in among the Indo-Europeans, but there were no well-personified great goddesses among the Indo-Europeans. And that's why I think that um, all of the religions, the prehistoric religions, probably changed. This is theory because we don't have it as fact. We don't have any text that we can translate that would attest to it. But it's my theory nonetheless. 
Okay. And, um, uh, sh- uh, you know, you're talking about this, you know, begs the question of, uh, you know, our beloved Maria Gimbutas. You know, she mm-hmm. uh, gave us the theory of the Kurgan invaders, you know, the Indo-Europeans that came and obliterated or um, uh how would you say? I, I guess you know uh, subsumed the uh, the goddess cultures that uh, were not warlike. Um, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it, I, I think it's always a good idea to explain why she's so controversial. And I wonder if any of her work has uh, you know be, you know yet to be uh, more accepted in mainstream academia, or, or do you think it ever will be? Well, um, for example, her Kurgan theory of the the original homeland of the Indo-Europeans has now been proved without doubt by by DNA studies in this past year, year and a half. That's um, probably, the DNA studies are probably the most exciting phenomenon that I've seen rise in the last decade because they're proving so many important theories. At some point, what's what's happening now is people are now echoing her Kurgan theory without giving her credit for it. Oh, wow. Yes. Wow. <laughs> so, uh so so does that mean um she's been vindicated or just partially at this point? I mean, what was it that made her uh, her teaching so controversial that you know mainstream academia said no, uh-uh, we can't go there. What probably made Maria's work controversial is that she never used the word perhaps or the phrase I think. She was very definite about her beliefs, and people responded poorly to that. What's interesting is until she started writing about female figures in well her first book of that sort was published in 1974. Until then, her work was totally widely accepted and greatly honored. Um, it was mostly work on, Indo- on Eastern European, Indo-European archaeology, and she was one of the very few experts in that field at that time, and one of the very, very few people in the United States who could read the primary source material from Eastern Europe and have something intelligent to say about it. That's so unfortunate. Here she was, the cognitive minority. Um, I I hope down the road at some point, um, you know, she will get the credit for having discovered this. Uh, I mean, is anything being done in uh, uh, in feminist spirituality or, you know, the circles that, uh, you know, you're involved with to uh, be sure she's not forgotten and, you know, point back to her work? Joan Marler is working on a doctoral dissertation on on Maria and her work and the controversies that I think will shed a lot of light. I'm on her doctoral committee, so I haven't enjoyed what I've read so far. So is Maria the first one to look, for instance, at these bird figures and make the connection between, you know, Mm -hmm. that they are representative of goddess? She probably was. I mean, I 
there were very, very likely people in Eastern Europe writing about it. I last night, um, a friend and colleague, a, a Romanian archaeologist, sent me uh, uh, by email a book of conference proceedings from a recent conference he gave, and it was filled with articles on um, serpent iconography from the Southeast European. Yeah, mostly Southeast European, but going into Ukraine, um, archaeology of the Neolithic. And I was okay. so delighted to see that. So I think that this information was well known by the people who were excavating. Um, one thing that was said about Maria in the wonderful documentary Signs Out of Time by her colleague, a woman who studied with her and excavated with her, Ernestine Elster, she said that Maria was the only one writing about the figurines that were found, that other people just didn't know what to say. They couldn't contextualize them. And Maria yeah. started writing early on about these female figurines. Well, and, and that uh, and that brings me back to the question I started to ask and said I would come back to um, this. I, you know, Maria uh, makes the connection of uh, the bird with goddess. I know she's. I think um, uh, maybe even in Lipinski Veer, uh, she's got a fish that is symbolic of yeah. goddess. You, you know, it's I could always a, understand. What? Go ahead. It's also a display figure. Oh, oh that, you know, that's There's true. There's this wonderful I, I fish display figure that I published. Okay, okay. You know, I hadn't thought about a display figure uh, in an animal yeah. form. That, yeah. Um, but, but so why, explain for, to listeners why the bird and why the fish? You know, the snake, we know it sheds its skin. It, you know, it, it, you know it's got this transformation. But... Um, you know, is it just, just we don't know enough about the life cycle of the bird and the fish to make that connection to? I don't think so. Um, the the fish, I think that many fish figures were found um, in Lipensky here. Um, one of them was a display figure. I am unaware of any other display fish figures in the world. So I think they were a fishing culture. They lived right on the Danube. And um, okay. so that so that's why that was important to them. The bird, the bird and the snake are in wonderful complementary dis distribution. The bird mediates heaven and earth. The snake mediates earth and the underworld. The bird um, and the snake both give birth oviparously. So you see the egg. You see it's a wonderful um, acknowledgement of birth. The birds um, molt. They lose their feathers and then they get them again. Um, just as the the snakes um, um, molt their skin and and grow new skins, they're um, they're really um, wonderfully um, complementary. Okay, well that makes more sense. You know, I I guess I wasn't thinking about the molting, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the molting aspect, uh, you know. I, I mean, I've, I've never seen a bird do that, quite frankly. I mean, I know they lose their feathers, but uh, uh -huh. now, now that you've said it, it, it makes uh, uh, perfect sense. Um, mm -hmm. 
So um, now also as far as, uh, you know, different birds, uh, in the article you start talking also about, um, you know, crows and vultures uh, as well. They're life birds and death birds. Just as there's birth, death, and regeneration among snakes, um, all the predators bring death. And so they are death birds, and there are also battlefield birds like crows. And so um, there is a uh, there there is the concept of the life continuum among both birds and snakes. That's why they excite me so much. Well, you know, we talked a little bit about Chateauhayuk, and uh, I know there they also had that iconography of uh, of the bullhorns. Now, was that supposed mm-hmm. to be representative of the uterus, or why? Why was uh, to speak a little bit about the bull's horns? You know, I really don't know. I know a woman named Dorothy Cameron wrote a book that Maria liked. That um, that compared the bucrania to the the uterus. I don't know really if uh, the prehistoric peoples would have connected that. However, in Chatelhuyuk, the bucrania are so important, and they seem. I mean, I, I just don't know if if it if there is the con the concept of birth in the uterus uterus or not. I haven't worked it out. Yeah, because I, I, I haven't been able to quite wrap my head around what yeah, that was supposed yeah. to be a symbol for, you know, uh, mm-hmm. unless, if it, you know, unless it was, you know, strength and vitality and virility. Um, you know, that was, you know, when you see bull's horns, I mean, that's the mm-hmm. sort of the natural inclination, but yet the shape is also suggestive um, as well. Yeah. But also, um, cows have horns. And Carol Christ argues that what we're seeing in Bucrania, um, and we see that, by the way, in Crete, in the Palace of Knossos, the Temple of Knossos, she, she mm-hmm. argues that it, that it represented cow horns. And, you know, you have many goddesses connected to cows from um, um, Isis. Hathor, uh, Hathor. Hathor, absolutely, Hathor, um, absolutely, um, to just um, uh, Hera, Juno, just many throughout early historic uh, texts. Yeah. So Carol might be right. Okay. Um, well, getting back to the snake goddesses uh, or mm-hmm. symbols, uh, you know, we can't overlook Medusa. I mean, in the Gorgons, you know, they're such mm-hmm. uh, primary, um, you, know, uh, you know, symbols of, of snakes. Um, you know, when we think of Medusa, though, we usually think of her as a death bringer. Uh, but yet, uh, in your article, you talk about Medusa and the snake skins uh, were representative of regeneration. Mm-hmm. Were they both? Were they both? You think? I think that by the time we get to Greek culture, um, that she is most of the text. I do have an article called "Beautiful Medusa." 
um, in the Journal of um, Feminist Studies and Religion that goes back to, I think, 2010. And I translated all the texts I could find in um, Greek and Latin, beginning with Homer and then working their way down to um, the early centuries of this era and tried to look at how the ancients were viewing her. They, they viewed her as beautiful enough for Poseidon to want to sleep with her. And then they, um, they made Athena angry with her and jealous of her because Poseidon raped Medusa in one of Athena's temples and, you know, blamed, blamed the person who's raped, right? Yeah, that I could never understand. I I can't imagine a goddess being so short-sighted to blame the victim. You know, that that feels like a patriarchal uh, version of uh, a distortion to me. Oh, it's a huge distortion. And I think that Athena is absolutely a spokesperson for the patriarchy. She says she is. In the in Aeschylus's play, The Eumenides, she actually says that she favors the male, and so they've they've twisted her. An earlier form of Athena could be found in the Ugarit, Ugaritic texts of Syria, with the goddess Anat, who whose name is very strangely like Athena's. Athena was Atana. And um, Anat is Anat or Anatta, and really Anat, but it's just a juxtaposition of, of um, one consonant. And I, Anat was both love and war. So I think I, yeah, I think that and very powerful. She told her um, her father, who was the great god El, whom we also see in the Hebrew Bible, um, "You build a house for this guy I like, or I'm gonna um, bloody you up. I'm gonna make your gray beard uh, red with gore." And he says, <laughs> "Okay, my daughter." So I think that 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 is a that Anod is a better figure to look at when we're thinking about the sacredness of Athena that we should think beyond Athena earlier in history and look at some powerful examples who Athena may have been taken from. I see. Well, and that makes me think about Lil. Um, is it Lil with Lilith too? Um, uh-huh. I didn't. Uh, I, I I think you, I'd heard it, but I think this was the first place in your article that I'd actually read it and saw it in such detail that the Sumerian Lil, a storm demon, is sort of the predecessor of Lilith. Um, yes. I, I didn't know that Lilith had a predecessor. I would. I I she thought did. you know. Sh- okay. Um, tell tell us a bit about Lil and how it turns into Lilith. Okay, well, um, the lil bird in in Sumerian uh, built a nest in um, Inanna's hulupu tree, and this is a relatively late text because the hero Gilgamesh then, um, uh, in Inanna just isn't as strong as she was a millennium before that, and she um, and she needs a hero to save her. So the king Gilgamesh. Um, uh, 
there's a snake that he slays and a bird that he slays, and he frees up the the halupu tree for her so that she can build the throne that she wants. It's sort to me, it's sort of silly. At any rate, there. This is the first mention that I saw of the little bird. Now there is also Acadian Lilitu, and that is the closest name to Lilith. The T at the end of of a word just means female. That's oh, that's okay. the the, fe- the female character. So uh, Lilitu Lilith. Um, is the female, probably the female lil bird originally. Akkadian and Babylonian are Semitic cultures just like the Hebrew, and they're they're all related. And so, so we, probably... So, uh, yeah, go ahead, finish that thought. Oh, sorry. So um, they were probably, their their stories, their myths were related as well. Well, you you talk about the Sumerian Lil, uh, a storm demon uh, who uh-huh. becomes the Akkadian Lilitu. Well, uh, that sounds like she's a, a maleficent character, and we know Lilith sort of gets the you know, but it, it you know her her myths. You know, she's she's a demon. You know, uh, she's the uh-huh. independent woman and all of this stuff. Uh, does does Lilith? Did she ever have uh, before she became? Uh, this um, uh, negative figure, um, you know, derided figure. Did she ever had a, a, a beneficent aspect? I think we'd have to look to um, pretext iconography in the Near East. Re- the very earliest texts um, in Semitic, in Sumerian, and Egyptian are already patriarchal. They, these were all patriarchal cultures, so there are female figures who may well have represented uh, more of a life continuum earlier on. I don't know. We don't have any earlier description of this little bird other than in a Sumerian text, the late Sumerian text. Well, and it's probably important to make the point, uh, rather than just assume listeners know, that, you know, of course not all of these goddesses, but some of these goddesses, you know, we, we they come down to us with patriarchal myths, and we, we may never know about their equalitarian or pre-patriarchal myth. You really have to dig for those, but that doesn't mean they didn't exist. Very good, exactly. They, um, who writes most of the myth? Most of the myth makers were men. We have some wonderful examples of, of women, but they're rare. Women like Sappho, who writes such gorgeous poetry. But she's in, in Greek culture, she's quite rare. There are a few females who, who write, and Everybody else is a male. Yeah, with a male point of view. Well, and I've always thought, Miriam. I mean, for instance, Sekhmet. You know, we only have that one myth of Sekhmet where she's basically a mercenary for Ra. And I, you know, I can, I, 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 I feel like I am not willing to accept that she had no pre-patriarchal myth where she. 
you know, it, I mean, I, I think that's just that's the only myth that survives, you know. Um, I, I can't believe there was nothing before that. What's interesting is um, her myths and Hathors sometimes intersect because there's the myth of Hathor and Ra, and um, one of the minor gods has made fun of Ra and say, says his temples are empty, nobody's worshipping him. And uh, Ra is just deep. He goes into deep despair. And Hathor goes and um, does a sacred display before him and brings back his joy. Now, she also, when when um, he's unhappy with humanity, she goes and becomes totally destructive you know she becomes this this striking warrior goddess just cutting people down and the people finally have to appease her with a beer mash which um, makes her relax and may, I can't remember maybe she goes to sleep and finally stops slaughtering and that is an aspect of the great goddess you know she's love, so, she's poetry she's everything as you know so, um, all right. So Hathor, I, I know I'm kind of getting off the subject here, but um, I'm loving. I can that. ask the questions. <laughs> um, okay. So Hathor, um, Hathor has the, you know, has, you know, does her, you know, her display, um, and you know, we know that Baobo did it. We know that Amaterasu's. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't think of um, her counterpart, Amaterasu's. Uh, uh, counterpart did it, and it, with Demeter and Amaterasu, uh, you know the the world is restored. You know, uh, yes. you know, but, but, but and you know, I've always and I've wondered if I intuitively understood this properly. It felt like when the goddesses displayed their yonis, you know, they were displaying. Um, you know, it felt like, uh, and, and you know, and, and you know, Balbo makes Demeter laugh, and Amaterasu, uh, you know, laughs as well. You know, when uh, mm-hmm. you know her counterpart, joy. I, you know, it, it yeah. joy. You know, it felt like it was joy. Uh, it was an, a reverence for the life-giving aspect. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it it uh, felt like it was. Um, I don't know, giving reverence to. Uh, the female mysteries. Um, I, I don't know. Is there another interpretation, or is that sort of on track? I think it's. I, it, it, according to me, it's on track. Um, I think that people are reminded of the blessing of the possibilities of birth when they see Hope. the female genitals. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, hope and um, hope yeah, and hope. new life and joy. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay, okay. Um, sorry, I'm jumping all around here. Um, now, it's fun uh, for you, me. you also. Well, good. I'm glad you're enjoying it because uh, I, I, I certainly am too. Thank you, Miriam. Um, you know, you uh, going back to your article a little bit. I've I've highlighted this whole thing, and I have questions here and there. Um, you talk about in the Inanna section uh, that uh, you're talking about Inanna, and uh, you say this deity was not purely beneficent or purely maleficent. She gave life mm-hmm. and took it away again. So it sounds like you know I've been having this conversation in our wisdom circles. 
much, you know, we've been going back mm. and forth with, you know, is the, is, the, is the goddess life force, is that cosmic force, whatever we want to call it, uh, whether we think she's deity, archetype, or ideal, or uh, indifferent energy, just she's just an energy of the cosmos that is indifferent and i don't know when i read that sentence the deity was you know uh she could take you know give life or take it away it felt like uh it felt indifferent and i wondered if you meant it that way no uh, or if okay um, i don't mean that she was indifferent i mean that death is a natural phenomenon and if you have a great goddess, she's going to be responsible for the life continuum, and that includes death. It doesn't make death bad. It just okay. means that but it's death not has like she's an indis- It's not like she's an indiscriminate killer or uh, or think or so. thinks lightly of death. Um, it's just sort of a fact of life. It's just a fact of life, although, you know, there are these early texts. Once the cultures become warrior cultures, they use their great goddess as a warrior who just delights in bloodshed. This doesn't happen until patriarchy. I don't think that the prehistoric goddess delighted in bloodshed because you don't find that kind of symbolism in in these cultures. Red means the blood of of birth-giving and life. It doesn't mean slaughtering people. But then, you know, Miriam, you'll have people say, okay, but if goddess is nature, look how deadly nature can be. And, you know, whether it's, you know, drought or fire Mm -hmm. or flood or earthquake, you know, uh, if, if you're looking at goddess personified as nature, then it feels random. It feels indifferent. It you know what does. I mean? Rather than it does. A, a, yes. a, so but how do you how do how do you explain the you know the the disconnect there? I think that if you're worshiping goddess, worship there's always a the element of asking when you're worshiping. You're asking for a good life. You're asking for abundance. You're asking for fecundity. I don't think you're asking for indifference. So when you're worshiping the goddesses and all these these thousands and thousands of excavated female figures, you're not just saying, oh boy, here's another symbol of indifference. I think that you're asking her for the good things in life. And, yes, she has to represent death because it's part of life. But, you know, as um, Maria wrote in Living Goddesses, the tomb is the womb. The place of death was also celebrated as the place of rebirth. Yes, yes. Well, you know, I guess, yeah, um, but I guess I, I'm I'm trying to um, formulate an argument for the person who says, um, uh, you know, uh, you're you know you're you know it, a lot of people want to say that if you you know believe in a deity, it's anti-intellectual, you know, and they want to say, okay, so <laughs> you'll you you know you worship a goddess. Uh, but she doesn't really care about you, you know. If uh, if if she's really nature, you know, why does she just so randomly, uh, you know, do the things she does that destroys so many people? 
you know it it, yeah. it it's kind of hard to formulate a comeback if you know what i mean but the only comeback that comes to me and this is sort of off the top of my head is that when we worship her we put her in a different light we're not worshiping indifference we're not we're not even really worshiping death although sometimes when we get old enough we are really ready especially those of us who believe in birth death and regeneration want to get rid of this body that isn't working anymore and go get a new body when i feel like it so yeah. it loses you know it loses a lot of that negative energy when you're not dividing the the world into heaven and hell and you're not um only looking at the world as a duality a positive and then yeah a because you know duality. you're going to come back again yeah, yeah you know you're going to come back again you're going to shed this body that maybe gives you pain um mm-hmm. sickness and mm-hmm. you know you 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 know uh, you want to shed this shell basically Exactly. So this doesn't always have to be a negative. Obviously, when it comes to some people too soon, at least those of us who are left behind are filled with sadness at the loss. I think, though, that the loss is for the living. Yeah. Not necessarily yeah. for the person who's choosing to go on. And, by the way, I do think it's choice. It, I don't think, it, think it's in, that we have choice that i think we, that we we choose how long we're going to live what we're going to do what families we're going to be born into i truly believe that we have that choice all those choices. well and well and i was just thinking about this in the last few days um uh to tell you the truth you know um it would be you know the idea of starting over you know if we acquire a certain amount of wisdom in this mm-hmm. in this lifetime um and it it's sad in a way to in a sense lose that if you I do know. okay you know, and then have to start all over again. You know, there there does seem to be some loss in that, uh, unless somehow you know we keep it in our DNA memory or something. I think you know. we keep it in our DNA memory. Um, you know, people have talents for certain things. That may be the accumulation of knowledge gathered over lifetimes. If one yeah. has a talent for language, a talent for athletics, a talent for art, anything, that may just be the growth of an ability. And we can't yeah. see the beginning of that line. Yeah, yeah, it, it was accumulation from lifetimes is what you're saying. Yeah, so we may well, not remember specific instances, although regressions, hypnotic regressions do help. True, true. And, you know, when I'm thinking about, you know, uh, going back to this, you know, people who want to say goddess is indifferent and she really doesn't care about us and we're wasting our time, uh, you know, if if we do, um, you know, see her as someone who does care about us and answers our prayers. Mm -hmm. You know, I think someone says that if they haven't had a connection. You know, uh, if so they've too, maybe never yeah. had a mir- haven't had a miracle, 
you know. Um, yes, had very, a, a, yes. a, a tremendous, you know, magical experience that mm-hmm. you can't um, explain other than uh, your prayers are answered, you know, or you were mm-hmm. divinely guided or blessed or mm-hmm. something, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when, when you have that kind of experience, um, this indifference, I think it doesn't really seem feasible. At, at least that's right. my perspective. And, yeah, yeah. I, I completely agree with you. Um, okay, so back to <laughs> we we digressed, <laughs> but you know uh, it was fun anyway. So so the, all right, I want to talk about the wings a little bit. Uh, obviously, this is still uh, part of the bird aspect. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Anana and Isis both had wings. You mentioned mm-hmm. angels have wings. Um, it you know I couldn't help but think about the figures uh, that are supposed to be atop um, the what is it the Oh, gee, my brain is going blank. The box that was in the temple uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, what is it, the box that's missing, the golden box? Um, yeah, I know. Not the Holy Sepulcher. Is it the Holy no. Sepulcher? No, it's the. Um, but, but you know, they carried it all through the desert. And, yeah, and uh, I, I, I have the, temp- the name on the tip of my tongue, and I'm not. But you know what I'm talking um, about. Um, mm hmm. Do do you do those images on top of that box? Um, I've you know winged figures. I've always wondered if that wasn't a, potentially a throwback to the winged goddesses. I think angels are in Judeo okay. uh, Christian belief. I think that you have these female and fam- male figures with wings. I do think it, it goes back to that concept. I think other people don't have to think it, but I do. (laughs) Um, All right. And, well, and, you know, and you, uh, even though this article was mostly about birds and snakes, I was happy to see you did touch on felines. And, you know, felines are a a big deal for me. Me too. um, Me too. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, who who can who can live without their cat, right? And I don't know. Uh, you talk about <laughs> uh, certainly not happily. <laughs> um, you right. you talked a bit about you know our cats or sort of just. Uh, um, you know, uh, you know, we can look at them as you know uh, part of that panther aspect uh, because we had uh, goddesses. Uh, you have a, a figure here of Demeter seated on a panther, which I actually had never seen before. Um, Isn't that great? And I wonder. Yeah, you know, I've seen the, the, the two lions on on side of the you know precursor to Cabelli, you know, from Chateau mm-hmm. Hayuk. But you know, you don't see the panther quite so much, I don't think, uh, as you do maybe some of the other uh, symbols. And I wondered, you know, how you know if you've explained really well how the bird and the snake sort of fits into the goddess cosmology. But what does mm-hmm. the what does the feline represent? Well, um, this has come into um, the research I've been doing the last few years on on female display figures, the, and throughout. 
prehistory into history, the goddess who does a sacred display is associated with felines. In Chauvet Cave, which dates to about 40,000, I mean the earliest findings date to about 40,000 BCE, the Orgnation period. The, um, you, I'm sure you've seen the huge vulva that was painted before anything else around it. Um, is oh, in right, the cave. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. She is um, just um, before the Holy of Holies, the innermost gallery, which depicts felines. Um, you have um, all of these display figures are s- somehow associated with felines. I haven't figured out why, but maybe just the power, maybe just a symbol of uh, power. I don't know. Well, can I, let, let me tell you something I heard at the Getty, and um, for what it's worth. Uh, it was a whole day's conference on Aphrodite, and scholars mm. from all over came and spoke. And mm-hmm. I can't tell you the name of the scholar. I think she was Italian. And, but anyway, uh, she, went, she was talking about um, Aphrodite's temples. They uh, quite often were associated with felines, and they were usually had perfumeries. And she made the connection that when a cat sprays and that oh. pheromone goes out, wow. um, uh that you know, and that you know, so that then you start to connect the dots. You know, mm-hmm. maybe it's the the spray of that pheromone, uh, which you know is to attract a mate for regeneration, sure life, this uh-huh. display figure. You know, maybe mm-hmm. somehow that's all connected. I love that. Thank you. Yeah. That, that um, yeah. Be. I, I, I mean, I actually, uh, I actually asked for that paper, and they actually sent it to me. I have it somewhere. If I can find it, I'll, I'll try to make a copy and, uh, and oh, send it to you. you. But that, that fascinated me. Uh, I thought that that makes perfect sense. Um, mm-hmm. You know, not that not that when a cat sprays, it smells like perfume, but you know, you get <laughs> the idea. It's 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 a scent. You know, and um, it's, 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 it's a symbol a, of fertility. Yeah, and it's a pro- yeah. and it's uh, an attraction, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, even though humans don't like th- that scent that the cat puts out, humans are attracted to pheromones, and uh, you know, and and pleasant scents. So mm-hmm. I, I I started thinking, you know, maybe uh, you know that's the reason for the felines associated with goddess. Mm-hmm. Very um, possibly. Well, and then you, uh, you know, then you kind of take, you know, you're in this article. You start at the beginning, and and you're taking this through. Um, and what I found really interesting too was a footnote uh, you had. Um, and, and again, I apologize for going back and forth here, but it was this footnote about snakes related to Medusa in the Neolithic. And you're talking about this uh, other scholar who uh, said the snakes were uh, male phallic symbols oh. and the fear of Medusa was connected to the fear of castration. I mean, I know you wrote this article a long time ago, but does that ring a bell? 
Um, do you remember yeah. more about what that was? And the matted hair growth was a result of sexual denial, and the penis-shaped hair was a sexual substitute for the husband. I, I can't remember <laughs> the the man's name, but it, I I know I was quite incensed at the time. Um, um, so was that was that a footnote uh, in in this article? Yeah, it was footnote number 54 in the article. Oh, thank and, you. Um, oh, I've got it. I've got it. I have it in front of me. Oh, I was try- I, I couldn't quite understand the whole footnote, but it sounded very, uh, it sounded provocative. I hoped you might be able to explain it a little bit. Just that it's Freudian. I just read okay. an article of his um, a long time ago, and um you know, he's also looking at the matted hair of um, ecstatic males and not just females. But he, you know, as you know, Freud believed that snakes were male phallic symbols. I don't. Okay. No, I didn't. <laughs> and I, I have here, Obiescare admits that there might be personal bias in the view of the anthropologist. <laughs> But he believes that his personal projections may be the same as those of his informants. These are all um, patriarchal viewpoints, and they're the informants, of course, are going to be males. Well, that well, you know, it, the snakes as phallic symbols, you know, obviously, I guess, makes sense. But fear of Medusa connected to fear of castration. I, I don't I think I, not. I'm not sure how to connect those dots. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't connect the dots either. I just thought that um, I'd throw that in there because it was fun. Yeah, well, it is. It it it's it's a head scratcher, and it, and it certainly <laughs> kind of gave kind of gave me a chuckle. Um, mm-hmm. Well, uh, and and uh, well, we were talking about the lions before. You, we also have Artemis, winged Artemis, uh, with lions. Um, yep. Yep. Uh, let's see. Oh, and I, I wanted to ask you about this. Uh, this was something new I read too. In talking about Medusa, uh, the hero Perseus cuts off her head, and the winged horse Pegasus springs forth from the wound. The snaky-haired goddess was thus destroyed, and from her body came the winged horse. This avian viperine complementarity is not only achieved by means of the horse. Um, I, I'm trying to figure out how the horse, um, how the horse fits in there. I, I guess I, I do not really understand. Oh, okay. Yeah, Pegasus she gives birth to Pegasus, horse. who is a winged horse. Yeah. However, in one image that I show, she uh, it is Medusa who's winged. When her head is cut off, she's winged, and no wings appear on Pegasus in that in that ancient artifact. So it's clear that it was also thought that Medusa had wings. Oh, okay. So she has her okay. own complementarity of bird and snake. Okay, okay. And and so um, and we're looking at. Uh, I, I guess I'm. I, so when Pegasus springs from the wound, okay. So Pegasus is the winged horse. Are we mm-hmm. saying that in a sense Pegasus is almost representative of Medusa or or uh, an aspect of bird goddess? That would be a male takeover of the bird goddess, wouldn't it? It's a, that's a good question. 
And it may well be that he now is taking Medusa's place once once she's beheaded. Now, in the oh, very earliest in... representations, no, go ahead. Sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. In the very earliest representations of Medusa, um, um, in Homer, she is only a head. And she's a head in the underworld, and she's sort of this um, frightening figure. Um, and I remember years ago, uh, my old friend Pat, Patricia Monahan uh, thought that Medusa represented the sun because she was just a head so early on. So that might mm-hmm. have been another of her of her um, manifestations. I think she represented so, a lot of things. Well, well, and that begs the question: How should a goddess advocate or, say, a feminist look at Medusa as uh, a positive figure? I'm, I mean, I've I've been reading this book about female rage, and they use the Medusa. Mm-hmm sort of as the archetype all through the book, you know, righteous anger, so to speak, you know, yeah. because women have been, you know, so marginalized. But do you have another take on that? I mean, how to look I at do. her as a positive image? I do. I think she's a direct descendant of the great goddess of the Neo, one of the great goddesses of the Neolithic. And yes, you know, women can project their rage onto her, but I don't think that is her original personification and you know if you're interested i will send you the article on medusa that i that i wrote because i included all of that in the article i included some women who think that she's rage if if you you would like it okay yeah well and i think part you know these were psychologists women psychologists yes they were the book was about yeah, uh, fem, you know, about rage and, you know, how, uh, of course, mm-hmm. women should be outraged <laughs> in this patriarchal culture, you know. And, Absolutely. And Medusa. I mean, shouldn't she be outraged at the treatment she got, you know? Um, so yeah. any, anyway. She should, <laughs> she should hate patriarchal culture, not hate men, hate men who hate women, maybe, Yes. or not respect men who hate women, but you and I both know some wonderful men. And, yes. You know, I I um, don't feel that I want to condemn a whole gender um, just because patriarchy, the, the socialization is so negative. I think that men True. haven't benefited from it either. And likewise, all women aren't perfect and don't always, you know, take the high road. You know, they're not always the mm-hmm. – uh, so it's it's the person, not the genitals they're born with. Uh, exa- exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, so Miriam, before uh, we run out of time here, because I realize, yeah. you know, we've just kind we of are. been going on, running, right? um, it, and I've, I've really kind of gotten off track a bit, but, uh, but it's been fun. You know, the whole, uh, you know, your, your article was so, you know, encompassing, but the point was, I mean, as you get, to, you know, toward the end, you know, you're making the connection that, 
you know, the goddess imagery evolved from, uh, you know, ancient bird and snake goddesses into more contemporary times when, uh, you know, we end up, uh, you know, with with the more maleficent, um, you know, imagery of of witches, and and I and I guess I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about that transition. You know, how do we go from uh, you know bird and snake goddess to suddenly now, uh, you know, we have you know we have these uh, you know the the fearsome, maleficent, uh, negative sort of connotations that unfortunately are attached to witch. Well. Oh. It, yes, but I don't think that all um, bird and snake goddesses evolved into um, the death form of the goddess. In other words, there is a death form, and in a culture which believes that death is horrible, that death is the enemy, that that believes that there is no life continuum, then the the death aspect has to be turned into a monster. Okay. Or I a see. witch and, in a culture that, that doesn't like witches. I see. And so and, and so really that's where it comes from. It's a it's a symptom of that fear of uh of, of the life cycle, of the continuum that is God. I think. That's what I think, and we've got to get over it. Okay. You know, if we, um, um, well, and and I mean, this is uh, I I uh, I know you sent me this article, and I would I would uh, I didn't actually go search for it myself. I don't think I would I would just uh, so wholly recommend that any of my listeners actually go online to the Journal of Archaeomythology and pull up this article. I mean, uh, it was from Volume 7, uh, Special Issue uh, 2011, called The Monstrous Goddess, The Degeneration of Ancient Bird and Snake Goddesses into Historic Age Witches and Monsters. There's so much here uh, we couldn't even touch on. I mean, it's just a plethora of, of juicy tidbits. I mean, it's got a huge wonderful bibliography, uh, pictures, um, all sorts of excerpts from ancient texts. I mean, it's just, it's wonderful. And, and Miriam, you know, I really loved the conclusion because the conclusion is what, you know, I, I feel like has been my mantra, uh, you know, the last few years as I've Mind tried you know, whether it's in my anthologies or my classes or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. to sort of make people understand, you know, goddess spirituality isn't just this study of these ancient goddesses. I mean, it's relevant today. And, yes, you know, I, I wonder today. if, yeah. And so explain a little bit, you know, in your own words, you know, sort of your conclusion, um, like, you know, about the importance of all of this. My, my, my feeling is that instead of looking at, let's just go back to birth and death, instead of looking at them as um, good and bad, I think that that we have to 
get beyond the polarities and beyond the separateness, um, me good, everybody else bad, or me, us, my group good, the other group bad, and realize that we're all part of one another. That And that is the only thing that is going to allow us to grow into joy and and hopefully have our society grow into a joyous society when we stop thinking of ourselves as separate and we realize that if that person over there is suffering, I am too because that person is part of me. Absolutely. Does that make sense yeah, it it does, and and you know, and, and you and you have a few sentences here, um, you know, to just sort of add to that. You said in Western culture, the religion of the goddess and the god and and of gods and goddesses was replaced with male-centered Judeo-Christian religion, and mm-hmm. spirit became honored over matter. The deity became removed, distant from mortals. The mortal could no longer directly partake of the divine, and yeah. that was. A, Maybe sort of when we lost our sense of ourselves as sacred, the earth as sacred, other people as sacred, yeah. um, and and the, and this is what we end up with when we lose the the reverence uh, for life, whether it be our own or, you know, uh, but because with goddess we believe we're all interconnected, you know, exactly. and you can't you know, can't go bomb another country, you know, uh, if you really believe that kind of a thing. Exactly. You can't be a warrior culture if you believe that. So a primary emphasis in a warrior culture has to be that we're separate separate for anyone we deem our enemy at any given time or else we couldn't attack them. Exactly. They have to be other. You know, mm-hmm. and I mean, we do that here in the United, you know, even in the United States with our class wars and our yeah. race wars and, our, you know, in mm-hmm. our, um, you know, our anti-immigrant or anti-gay, uh, you know, uh, so sentiments, yeah. unfortunately, that we have. Yeah. You know, we can, uh, it, it, the idea that, you know, the it, it is so easy to uh, not worry about if people have food or, uh, right. or a roof over their head if they're not like mm-hmm. you if they're you know because we hear all the time uh, you know people want to cut food stamps or uh, uh-huh. cut social programs because they think those uh, you know people not like them or the ones you know the, those lazy takers you know yeah right right uh, right they're the other they're not me right. yeah yeah absolutely well, well, Miriam, I've had fun with you tonight, and I and I want to be respectful of your time. Um, is there? Uh, it, we, we've we've covered a good part of the article, certainly not all of it. Uh, it was a fun topic, and I'd love to have you on whenever you want to come back again. I, I know you have so many papers; we could probably talk about a lot of different things. <laughs> and you're always welcome back if if you're in the mood. Um, but is Thank there anything you. maybe so you fun. would like to? Well, thank you, thank you, and and I know my listeners like this too. Um, you know, they like when we kind of go back to our goddess roots, and uh, and and it's fun for me as well because I get rusty on this stuff. Um, 
But I can't is there imagine anything you rusty on it? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, I get rusty. Look, oh, I was I was so saying funny. Stonehenge and and Chateau Hayek were, oh, well. uh, con- <laughs> were, were were taking place at the same time. Um, but it, was there anything you <laughs> anything you might want to uh, share that uh, I haven't thought to ask you that's maybe important about any of this or parallel on a parallel track? On a parallel track, what's most important is the heart and connecting to the hearts of everybody. That's, I think that's what is going to save us. Well said. I, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more because, you know, I, I, someone said to me, you know, we either come from a place of, uh, of fear or love, uh, and I think fear is at the uh, heart of this idea of the other, you know. Mm-hmm. And I know Rianne Eisler, you know, I've been, you know, doing a lot with her Center for Partnership Studies. And with uh-huh. her, I've sort of come to, to also think about looking at everything through the lens of is it respect and partnership or is it domination and exploitation, you know. Exactly. And in a way, is wonderful. Yeah, and in a way that's fear and love, too. You know, mm-hmm. um, it it really all comes back to the same thing. You know, what kind of world do we want to live in? Uh, yes. Because you you know your life may be fine right now, but um, you know you're one disaster away from being the other. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, I boy, mean, that meant to. I, I'm not trying yeah. to be fear mongering, but you know, what is that saying mm-hmm. there? But uh, uh, but for the grace of God, go I. You know that yes, that's. I do. Uh, yes. You know that that saying. So anyway, um, so Miriam, what what do you have on your agenda? Uh, what, what projects are you are you working on? Uh, any um, trips you have planned? Uh, what would you like to you, tell us? Well, um, I was invited to um, go back to Romania. I've been there several times with with my husband he he comes and just likes um taking photographs for the people who give the conferences and um um I'm going to a conference in late October in Sibiu Romania and all of these conferences the past several years have have been on prehistoric religion and they're fascinating wow. absolutely fascinating so i am in the early stages of writing a paper on um female figures who were um parts of prehistoric groups of goddesses like the lithuanian laumas the um romanian zine um come into historic time um that they um they become fairies sort of sometimes beneficent sometimes not so much but i'm i'm trying to tie them together in some way so that's what i'm working on right now and then this weekend i get to have a a great working weekend with Vicki Noble and Laura Amazoni working on our Indus Valley book so that's what i'm doing right now Sounds like fun. And did you uh, know Star Star Goody has a beautiful uh, book out on uh, Sheila Nagigs? I I have my copy, and I read it in manuscript. It's fantastic. It's just a wonderful book. Yeah, she is going to be at the um, 
at the Pagan Conference in Claremont at the end of the month, and I think okay. she, I think she's my guest the first Wednesday in February. She's going to be talking about her uh, Sheila Nagid book. It's uh, it, it's a beautiful coffee table book. It um, is. It's on my coffee know. table actually, because it is. <laughs> the Inner Traditions just produced a wonderful book. It's um, it's beautiful. It's affordable. Good publisher. Yeah, yeah, it's really a great, uh, really a great book. I was amazed to see uh, what incredible quality it was. So, mm-hmm. and I think it's the best book I've read yet on Sheila Giggs. Okay, well, I uh, look forward to uh, to getting through that one too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, mm-hmm. Miriam, thanks. Thank you, thank you so much, and uh, I've I've appreciated our time together, and uh, I wish you well for your projects. Uh, you know, going forward in 2017. Thank you so much, and you too. And thank you so much for being a great hostess. Oh, and and you know what, Miriam, I really did appreciate the review you did of Goddess 2.0. It was really lovely. Oh, thank you so much. Oh, good. I'm so glad you liked it. Thank you, Karen. Okay. All thank right. You. Good night. Good night. Bye bye. Well, we went a little long there, but I think it was well worth it, and uh, I'm sure you enjoyed it as much as I did, too. And uh, I promised at the top of the show I was going to share a uh, a poem, a New Year's uh, poem, uh, you know, kind of uh, encourages a little bit of uh, introspection, and uh, thanks, uh, Lavana, uh, for sending this to me. Lavana is actually going to be a guest on the show, and... Uh, uh, a month or two. Uh, but anyway, it's called The New Year's Wish uh, for You from Lavana. It says, Enter into your inner self and behold the eye of your soul. Nothing has power except what you give it. Your duty is to be and not be this or that. When we see clearly, all great teachings are the same. To lose yourself is to find the oneness. Knowing others is wisdom and knowing yourself is enlightenment. The foolish reject what they see. The wise reject what they think. The key to the inner sanctum is love. Love sits in your heart and your soul. Let it be expressed in your words and actions. Face your world with a smile. Practice spreading joy as a lifestyle. Thank you, Lavana. That uh, that was pleasant. Uh, made me smile when I read it. Well, um, and uh, I have to make a shameless plug uh, for my own new anthology uh, just out now, uh, which I'm happy to say includes uh, uh, a wonderful essay from leaders in our community like Ann Baring, Rianne Eisler, Starhawk, Carol Christ. Uh, and many other important visionaries and new voices carrying the torch uh, for sacred feminine liberation theology who explain in relevant terms why goddess ideals uh, is the spirituality of freedom, fairness, and evolution. Uh, As I mentioned, it's called Goddess 2.0, Advancing a New Path Forward, and uh, it's been getting great uh, reviews. Uh, Miriam, who was just on the show, uh, wrote a wonderful review and uh, posted it on Amazon. And uh, here's a here's a, a brief synopsis uh, on the back of the book I'd like to share with you. Um, it goes like this. 
you are not alone if you believe domination and authoritarian patriarchy are destroying countless lives on our planet. There is a more sustainable alternative, and it's not new. In fact, it's ancient. Exiled for a time but making a return, the sacred feminine has become indelibly integrated into our lives, reminding humanity during this time of crisis that the ideals of the great she offer a pathway to secure a more sustainable future. As people lose faith in organized religion, as the paradigm of power shifts across the globe, as climate change quickly approaches a point of no return, people are leading using their divine intelligence gleaned from goddess teachings to find solutions and sanctuary. We are witnessing this awakening across the globe as people from all walks of life and cultures turn to goddess, deity, archetype, and ideal to evolve from the malignant chaos we face today. Using the wisdom and activism suggested in Goddess 2.0, advancing a new path forward, we see through the lens of spiritual, cultural, and political leaders sharing the many ways goddess spirituality has grown and matured in the minds of her advocates to inspire the birth of a new world and usher in a time of security, partnership, peace, equality, and prosperity for all. The contributors to uh, Goddess 2.0 are Ann Baring, Starhawk, Carol Christ, Rianne Eisler, Barbara Walker, Christina Biaggi, Elizabeth and Robert Fisher, Shirley Rank, Bob Gratrix, Patricia Ilona, Nancy Vetter Schultz, Isadora Forrest, Karen Tate, Amy Peck, Linda Isles, Andrew Gurevich, Charlotte Cressy, Duffy Demore, Tabby Biddle, Trista Hendren, and Harita Mani. You can get a signed copy from me for only $16. Uh, you can uh, go to my website, karentate.com, and when you get to the Goddess Store page, uh, just uh, click on the links that you have there, uh, make a payment on PayPal, and uh, you'll be one of the first to have your own signed copy and discover how Goddess Ideals go way beyond what color candle to use on your altar. You know, Goddess Ideals are about social justice and the common good. And, you know, you might like to know that the book uh, is dedicated to Rianne Eisler and Bernie and Jane Sanders. And as you've probably heard me say, Bernie's ideals are goddess ideals. So let's get to it and reconcile our spirituality and our politics. I hope you'll pick up uh, a copy, and if you're in the Southern California area, uh, we have some interesting things coming up I'd like to uh, tell you about. Uh, please save the date for my book launch party on February 18th at the Museum of Woman, Goddess Temple of Orange County in Irvine. Also a bit sooner on the horizon uh, is the um, uh, Pagan Conference at Claremont University in Claremont, California. It's the last weekend in January. Um, many great speakers there, including Star Goody, I just mentioned. Uh, my paper is titled Spiritual Courage, Partnership, and Caring Economics, Antidotes to Domination. So if you want any more information about any of that, um, please uh, find me on Facebook and send me a private message, or you can always uh, contact me at uh, KarenTate108 at ca.rr.com. And that's, uh, again, KarenTate108 at ca.rr.com. And um, I have a bit of... Uh, 
you know, a word here uh, from Joe Carson. Uh, I wanted to read uh, you a review about uh, her book, uh, Celebrate Wildness. And uh, she had a great review by Dana Corby, uh, and Dana put it in her blog, uh, The Rant and Raven. Uh, this is what Dana said about Joe's book, and I wholeheartedly agree. I have my own copy and uh, can't say enough about it, uh, just really good stuff. Uh, so Dana uh, says this about Joe Carson's uh, book, Celebrate Wildness. When people wonder aloud how the Wicca of Southern California became so much more nature-oriented and wild than the British traditions from which it arose, the one factor they don't take into account but should is feriferia. Feriferia, a word Fred Adams coined from Greek roots meaning wilderness festival, is a pagan tradition unlike any other. Based on Fred's visions of the divine feminine, the sacredness of Eros, and the potential for intentional communities that truly do no harm to anything, it also draws upon themes familiar to Wiccans, such as sacred landscapes, prehistoric beliefs, and the fairy faith. Fred intended that Feriferia should lead the world into a paradisal future in which freedom, eros, and play are the core values, where that built by human hands merges seamlessly into the wild and the fae romp among us. The book Celebrate Wildness is a unique, exquisite, and profound book. It created in me a sort of homesickness, a wistfulness for the idealist I was. We all were back when we and the world and the magic were all young and fresh. Though it's a short book at only 115 pages, they are filled with art. And don't expect to read it quickly. Take your time and let it sink into your subconscious. What bobs to the surface will be wondrous. That's what Dana says about Celebrate Wildness. And if uh, she's convinced you, you want to take a look, uh, you can get the book easy enough at uh, the website, feriferia.org. That's F-E-R-A-F-E-R-I-A.org. Uh, the book is $45. Uh, and again, Celebrate Wildness is an oversized, hardbound book on heavy paper uh, filled with art, art-laden pages. Uh, it, that would make a great uh, coffee table book. So, uh, finally, uh, before I say goodnight, uh, I want to remind you to please uh, click the follow button so you get notice of uh, shows uh, that are about to um, air uh, moving forward. And as a reminder about uh, how important it is to understand and practice the concept, what we nourish thrives and what we neglect withers. Uh, that goes for your life and all its phases. Feed what nourishes you, and if this show nourishes you, uh, gives you inspiration or insight, please feed it so it grows and thrives. Um, don't be one of those people that only takes. Don't be one of those people who treat generosity from others like an ATM machine and only receives. That said, uh, say a prayer of thanks to Goddess before you go to sleep tonight. Thank her for the grace she's bestowed upon you in this life. Or, you know what, call a friend or a loved one and say thank you for what they've given you. Gratitude and appreciation are the gas in the tank of your life. It keeps you going. Fill it and you'll speed down the road. Only take and never give back and you'll find your life sputtering. Or you might be broken down in a ditch. <laughs> 
All right, so uh, the mottos of the show, uh, I like to always uh, say them because I think they are so very important. Uh, From the 19th century German philosopher, author Schoenhauer, uh, because I believe we're living in a paradigm shift, he said way back then, all truth passes through three stages. First, it's ridiculed. Second, it's violently opposed. And third, it is accepted for being self-evident. And then Gandhi said, First they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. Okay, uh, I'm going to go ahead and let you hear the full version of Celia's uh, song, Meta Prayer. And I want to thank you for tuning in tonight and uh, look forward to having you uh, back with me next week. Uh, My guest is going to be Jack Dempsey. And uh, Jack is back uh, for our final interview for a while. And uh, Jack uh, is going to be talking about, um, uh, let me see what, yeah, Jack is going to be talking about uh, uh, post-Minoans, Palestine, and the Bible, people of the sea. Yes, people of the sea, post-Minoans, Palestine, and the Bible. So uh, that should be uh, another interesting conversation. Okay, thank you so much, listeners. I hope you had a wonderful holiday and your year has started off great. And uh, hope you stick with me this year. I sure appreciate your listener loyalty. Good night.